Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What do you see the role of these forecasts as doing in, in American politics or in voter information? I think they combat bullshit media narratives, basically. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Zerklan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're a couple weeks out of an election, uh, you may have noticed. And so I was thinking, who who do I want to talk to about the election? Who who would I like to know what they're thinking right now, what they're feeling, what their assessment of the state of the race is? And the answer to that, of course, is Nate Silver, the founder of not just 538, but of model-based thinking about elections. Political scientists had done that before, but Nate really brought that to journalism, brought it in a different way. Uh, this is a very, very useful conversation to just level set yourself before the election. There's a lot of not great punditry out there and a lot of confusion, and Nate brings a really unusual clarity to it all. We talk about how his models are built, what they're telling us, how to interpret them. And we also talk about data journalism and, and the election and what the democratic disadvantage on the House level is and and how – how the numbers he runs help us understand what the baseline levels of American politics are and how they've shaped the competition between the two parties. So it's a great conversation. As always, you can email me with guest requests, feedback, whatever it may be, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. If you are not, you should be checking out Future Perfect, our new podcast, actually about making the world a better place. So much of this podcast is about how much worse things can get. It's nice to think about it a little bit differently. Subscribe to Future Perfect wherever you can, wherever you get your podcasts, but without further ado, here is Nate Silver. Nate Silver, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ezra. Good to, good to be here. So let me start here. I'm curious about the process of constructing a model for really anything. When you're thinking about building a new model, where do you start? What's the process? So almost all statistical models are, are grounded in history. So you start by collecting a bunch of data. In the case of the models we build for Congress, we have data on Every Senate race going back to 1990, every race for the House going back to 1998, things like the generic ballot, we can talk about what that means going back to before that presidential approval going back to 1946. And you're trying to, to use history to examine the current situation. If you have, for example, a Senate race like in Tennessee, for example, where you have 
very, very red state in what seemed like it's a blue-leaning year, and the polls say one thing and your expectations based on the state's partisanship say another thing, I mean, it's what you're looking for. You're looking toward historical guidance for, for how that race might shake out. So the implicit idea is that you are hoping that history will repeat itself, at least in a probabilistic way. You know, maybe of those types of races, two out of five times the Democrat wins and three out of five times the Republican wins. That's, that's the basic idea behind it. How do you decide what history to put in? In general, you use all the data that you can find. So it's not like we said, oh, okay, starting in 1998, those are meaningful comparisons in the House and not afterward. That's when you begin to be able to find the polling data that you need, the fundraising data that you need. So it's just a matter of, of data availability. I mean, every now and then, I guess you could say, okay, well, we have data going back 200 years, and so let's, let's use more recent data. But usually you don't have that luxury. Usually you take whatever data you can get. Because one of the things I think about in these model constructions is, you know, like I've read all these histories of, of different elections, and you would read the histories, and there is a story in each one, right? There is a, there's a narrative applied, or maybe many narratives applied, and there were scandals, and, you know, there was this amazing campaigner, and, you know, there was a war. And so there can be this tendency, particularly in more traditional kinds of political journalism, to treat each one as very unique. So as I understand it, what you're really looking for is comparable data across them that, that would pick up sort of whatever else is happening. Is that is that sort of a fair way to put it? Yeah, and, and part of the trick, so to speak, with building a model is figuring out how general or how specific you want to be, right? In general, as you add more variables, you can more accurately describe the past, but you encounter a point of diminishing returns or even negative returns as far as describing the future. You wound up kind of taking this fairly large sample size that you have and saying, okay, well, we want a race that meets these eight specific conditions. All of a sudden, you might not have a lot of examples to look from. So that's part of the, the art, I guess you'd put it, of building a model is figuring out what do you want to account for? What don't you want to account for? You know, my view is that there is a fair bit of special pleading. So people will say, hey, I understand that in general, in this circumstance, a Democrat wouldn't win in Tennessee, but here's why this race is is different. You know, in general, I think that's not <laughs> very useful. Maybe now and then it, it can be. Um, there's a lot of that, of course, after the fact to say, okay, well, you know, when Harry Reid won his Senate race in Nevada in 2010, he was behind in most, but not all, polls of the state. You know, some people can say, okay, well, obviously something special about Nevada and about Harry Reid, whatever else, you know, maybe, maybe not, but it's a lot easier to say, after the fact than, than ahead of time. So where are the models right now for 2018? So our models uh, show Democrats with about an 80% chance, uh, four and five, to, to pick up the House, but Republicans with about an 80% chance, four and five, to pick up the, the Senate or keep the Senate. And there are different versions of, of our models, so some are a little higher or a little bit lower, but they're generally in that 80%-ish in that range. And the governor's model? So for governors, we don't actually, I mean, we have them, we don't show it, but like for governors, we are looking more at individual races. And our trick for that is that we're adding up the population in all the states where Democrats or Republicans are favored respectively. And their Democrats have a pretty big edge in the high population states. So we expect somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of the country's population to be governed by Democrats once new governors are inaugurated in their respective states, and about 40% for Republicans. And that'll probably be true even though Democrats govern fewer states than Republicans, yeah? They'll probably have, yeah. So if you do look at the probabilities, right, I think we have like a 90%-ish chance of Democrats governing the majority of people. 
but Republicans with, with a two-thirds chance of governing the most states. But, you know, the states doesn't really matter very much for, for governors. You know, it's a lot more important who's a governor of, of Texas or California than Vermont or Wyoming. And also, governors are important to the redistricting process. And so if you have larger states, that means they have more members they send to Congress, and it means that the redistricting process, there's more at stake. And so therefore, if Democrats win the governorships in all these kind of Midwestern swing states, and they're favored in all of them except Ohio, I think we have as a true toss-up, you know, that would help them a lot. Even if you have Republican state legislatures, in a lot of states, the governor has de facto veto power over redistricting. So these gubernatorial races have important implications for 2022, which will be the first map with the new Congress, and also for 2024 when the candidates who become governors this year – I mean, Democrats don't have that much of a bench because they lost so badly in 2010 and 2014. You know, if Andrew Gillum wins in Florida, he'll be talked about as a, as a presidential contender potentially. You know, all these governor and all these close Senate races where you have new Democrats emerging. I mean, Beto, I guess, I suppose, right, will create new candidates that will be maybe fixtures in national politics if Democrats have a pretty good night for a long time to come. So this actually jumps me forward a little bit on what I wanted to talk about. But you, you brought up gerrymandering and redistricting. What do you think the size of the Democrat structural disadvantage right now with gerrymandering and geography is in the House? Like how far behind do they start? Yeah. <laughs> so – in our forecasts, Democrats need to win the popular vote for the House by about six points to actually be favored to win the majority of seats. So that's one answer. That's wild, by the way. And by the way, in the Senate, it's something like 12 or 13 points. Although the Senate, it's partly Democrats' fault because they have a really bad map this year. It just happens that it's all they're, – they're defending lots of senators in red states. They could have done a lot better in 2000. 14, 2016. And so it's their fault that those years where they have better maps, they didn't pick up more seats there. I want to understand uh, something you said, just said. When you say 12 or 13 points, you mean because of what uh, states are up, not because, I mean, there's no gerrymandering in the in the Senate. There's no gerrymandering. However, if you look at the, the average state, um, which sounds like a funny calculation, but that's, that's what it is. In the Senate, you're looking at the average state because it's the same number of senators per state is about six points more Republican-leaning than the country overall. So that's kind of the small state versus large state bias in the Senate is about six points. And again, it's also in the House about six points, although the House is a result of Democrats having had a really bad 2010 and kind of losing that round of, of gerrymandering. The inherent like structural bias in the House is not particularly large, but Democrats had a bad 2010. And so the one chamber where it might equalize a bit the House is also problematic for them. But yeah, if we have, so if we wake up on um, on November 7th and Democrats fail to take the House by, let's say, two seats, and if they lose, they'll probably be close, the headlines will be, what a disaster for Democrats. That could still be a night where Democrats won the popular vote <laughs> by six points, where they're governing uh, based on the governors, you know, 60% of the population or thereabouts. But if they just do it a couple of points worse than what the polls show, um, they might come up short in the House despite having won the popular vote for the House by a margin that in some context would be called a, a landslide. You know, a six-point win is reasonably large. But yeah. <laughs> let, let me ask you something about the Senate side of this because this is something I've been thinking a lot about. When you look at the Senate, um, Democrats have been either in charge there over, say, the past 10 years or it's been very close. And this is despite the fact that, as you say, average state lean appears to, to be a bit Republican. 
And there's a generalized view that Republicans do better in small states and Democrats do better in big states. I mean, that's going to be reflected in in your forecast that Democrats will be governing much more of the country despite governing fewer states. And yet, if you run a calculation on like who, which side tends to do better in say the 10 small states and the 10 biggest, you actually don't see much of a difference. So given given what you just said there about that, that six-point average gap, why are Democrats so competitive at the Senate level? Why have they been doing better in the Senate actually than they've been doing in the House recently? I mean, partly, so the very small states, I mean, you have some in New England that are, so it's a little bit more even, but it's kind of like the really large states, like California has almost 40 million people now. So there's just a lot of wasted Democratic vote in California alone. And it used to be that Texas kind of counteracted that, but Texas is, although probably Ted Cruz will win, is no longer nearly as red as California is blue. But look, part of it is like, you know, Republicans do have these structural advantages, at least based on the way their coalitions are configured now, but they aren't acting as though they're a supermajority party, right? They they do a lot of things that are fairly unpopular and they can get them done. So the kind of biggest things the Senate has done this year are the attempt to repeal Obamacare, the tax bill, and and Brett Kavanaugh. And Gorsuch, but he wasn't controversial, so it's not something that'll be in voters' minds as much. you know. But those th- first three things I mentioned, they were all pretty underwater in the polls. And so the GOP is kind of saying, hey, look, we're going to take advantage of power when we have it and do things that we really want. And if we're unpopular, well, all shucks, right? So they're not governing in a way that would lead them to take advantage of that, <laughs> of that majority and keep that majority. Instead, they're being more aggressive passing bills or appointing Supreme Court justices who a majority of the country might dislike. And the consequence of that is that despite these advantages they have, that we have very competitive elections. You know, another answer is the Senate used to be a bit less partisan. You saw particularly in the kind of farm belt states, so North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska, Montana, they still have John Tester. You know, those states used to send moderate Democrats to, to Congress. At some point, that largely stopped. But Democrats have always been kind of more of a coalition party than Republicans. And Democrats used to have kind of niches, moderate niches that they would carve out in their party that would elect senators from places who you wouldn't ordinarily expect Democrats to be from. But that tradition has largely has largely waned. When Obama took over in 2009, you still had a lot of those holdovers, but you don't really have very many of them anymore. So what you're saying there is that you can imagine an optimal political strategy for Republicans in the Senate and that if Republicans were following something closer to it rather than an optimal conservative policy strategy, let's say, they would be expected to just have a very real persistent advantage in the Senate majority. Yeah, if they were like, hey, we're really going to try and stick to things that are fairly popular, right, and we'll take – advantage of our conservative faction when we have a really big majority in the Senate, when we're up to 58 or 59 seats. But like, if we're a narrow majority, 51, 49, we're going to act like it and try and expand that majority instead of cashing in. Yeah, then I think they would take more advantage of that. But that's not how they've governed. With, With that said, if Democrats have a really bad night on November 6th, then the Senate could be Republican for a long time. I mean, I think people have said, okay, well, the Senate is unlikely to slip over and become Democratic, which based on our model, it's it's unlikely, but not by any means impossible. But like if Democrats win one seat and fail to take the majority, that's a lot different than if they lose three, which they could easily do if they lose the toss-up races. Because then even though the 2020 map is not bad for Democrats, in fact, it's pretty decent, then you make it much harder for a Democratic president to come in in 2020 with a Democratic majority. 
in the Senate. And so every individual Senate race matters. I'm going to preface this next question by saying I don't like the reality we're living in. <laughs> I would have liked the simulation to, to serve up something different. <laughs> but I think sometimes about the counterfactual where Hillary Clinton won in 2016, won a narrow uh, election, let's say those 100,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania went the other way. And Republicans held the Senate. They held the House. Hillary Clinton, I think, would have had, even with a good economy, a troubled presidency. Um, the Republican ire against her was so deep, and she would have been under constant investigation. She would have been getting probably nothing done with the House and Senate, so there would have been a lot of gridlock. There would have been a lot of like bitter partisan enmity. Usually, midterms go against the party in the White House, so you would have seen presumably uh, Republican gains in the House, given what the map looks like, possibly very big Republican gains in the Senate. And then you would have had that for the next redistricting. It really seems to me, and this is, again, it is not me saying it is better Donald Trump won. That, that is not how I feel about the situation. But in terms of like the next decade of Democratic competitiveness in Congress, if Donald Trump hadn't won, it seems to me plausible the Democrats would have been locked out of power in Congress for a very long time, given the base they were standing on, the weakened base they were standing on after Obama's presidency. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of run sketches of this calculation. We should probably run a more proper version. It would be a popular article. But I've looked at where would you project the Senate to go if Hillary Clinton had become president and had approval ratings somewhere in the neighborhood where Trump does. So she would be at, say she was at 42, 43, 44%. Um, it comes out as something like Democrats would project to lose like nine and a half seats. I mean, Whoa. like really, really big. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> assuming Republicans didn't lose that Alabama seat, putting Republicans over sixty. Yeah, they wouldn't lose Alabama. In fact, maybe Clinton would have done something in parallel, where like she would have nominated someone from a you know Amy Klobuchar or something to something, and all of a sudden um, that race would be vulnerable because you wouldn't have an incumbent anymore. But this map combined with an unpopular, although who knows, maybe in this branch of the universe, Hillary's popular for some reason, but like. This map plus an unpopular Democratic president would have led to massive Republican gains in the Senate in all probability um, to the point where it might wind up 60-40 or something GOP. That, that would be a very popular 538 article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder just – I know this is a little bit off of the forecasting question, but I wonder how you think about this, I don't know, undemocratic, both, both small and now large D tilt – across our institutions. I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I just wrote a, a big piece on it. But, you know, you have a Democratic disadvantage at the Electoral College level. You have a Democratic disadvantage in the Senate. You have a Democratic disadvantage in the House. Um, that's created a Democratic disadvantage uh, with some extremely aggressive tactical maneuvering by Mitch McConnell in the Supreme Court. All these things in turn rule on things like gerrymandering, voter ID and suppression laws, um, whether or not unions, public sector unions can collect dues in the ways they traditionally have. It seems to me that the playing field of American politics is getting increasingly tilted. And like if it were tilting in ways where, you know, the Electoral College favored the Democrats and the Senate map favored the Republicans, like maybe that would work out, right? It's diffuse. Yeah. Maybe there's a compromise or just a dissatisfaction is spread out enough. But the fact that it's all in one direction towards a coalition that is becoming – having increasing difficulty competing at the popular vote level, so it's losing a certain amount of legitimacy in the eyes of the big D Democratic coalition, that seems like a stress point in our politics. And if you imagine it getting worse, right, if you imagine not two of the last five presidentials being won by a Republican who lost the popular vote, but four of the next five, like, I don't know, like something seems off here. <laughs> uh, I'm curious how you think about that. So let's take them one by one, the kind of the Senate, the House and the Electoral College. 
the Senate is the one where there is, you know, the most long-term disadvantage to Democrats. Um, and in fact, for for many years, if you kind of add up and say, what's the median or the average Senate state, you know, that's more Republican leaning in the country as a whole. To some extent, I'm not someone who would get rid of the Senate. You know, to some extent, it's like, well, here are the states and these are the ground rules and the parties are able to compete on that basis. So at least you know the rules ahead of time. You know, to me, the biggest problem with the Senate is not so much that it happens to have a Republican lean, but that it tends to have a lean toward white voters as opposed to racial minorities. And so, you know, if in the Senate you were to add Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states, that would actually balance out quite a bit the racial imbalance in the Senate. The partisan imbalance, again, both parties can compete for whichever coalitions they want, and that's part of the structure. In the Electoral College, it does tend to flip back and forth a bit. Obviously, Democrats lost the Electoral College despite winning the popular vote in 2000 and 2016. In between that, Obama, although he won the popular vote, overperformed in the Electoral College relative to what you would expect, especially in 2012, fairly narrow popular vote win. And so he actually, with his coalition, the Electoral College was helpful to Democrats. So it doesn't take that much, you know, if like, if this one voting group white working class voters in the Midwest flip from being a kind of swing demographic to very Republican, that alone is enough to, to upset the balance of the Electoral College. And, and the House flips back and forth mostly based on who happens to have a good reelection in 2010 or 2020, but the year that determines when redistricting takes place. And so, so the Senate's the one where you have the biggest structural disadvantage, I would say. But yeah, look, I mean, part of this is like, you know, it's a bit ironic, other people have made this comment, that the GOP movement is talked about as populist when it relies on uh, minorities of support in, in various ways. I mean, the GOP did win the majority, at least the plurality of votes for the House in 2016. They probably will not. In fact, very unlikely that they will in 2018. But if you have a president elected, despite losing the popular vote by, by two points or three million votes, and you have a GOP House because Democrats only won the popular vote by five points, and that's not enough. And you have a Senate where if states were weighted based on population, Democrats might control the Senate, but it's not because you have two senators from Wyoming, then yeah, I don't know. You know, Again, I think that's the rules. I wouldn't change the Constitution or anything, but I do think in the way that it's described in the media, I think that's an important part of the story that tends to get passed off as a, a bad excuse for Democrats, right, as opposed to something that is fundamental to the structure of why elections turn out the way they do. Let me ask you about the House side of that. What you were saying that the House flips back and forth depending on who has power over redistricting. There's a big debate in political science on this. You know this as well as I do, where political scientists tend to be a lot less convinced of redistricting theses. Um, it's good to me redistricting is helping um, Republicans some, but but there is this argument that a lot more of it increasingly is geography, that Republicans are so much more dominant in rural areas, in sparsely populated areas. Democrats are clustering so much more in cities that even if you had relatively fair redistricting, like let's say we gave it to independent commissions, like as Canada does, you would still have a Republican lean in the House just because of literally cultural preferences in where Republicans live versus where Democrats live. Do you, do you think that's not true? So it's true that if you draw the most compact districts possible, so algorithmically say, let's kind of make sure that the districts are, are don't span any more territory than they have to mathematically, that will yield a Republican-leaning map. 
although it also yields a lot more swing states than or swing seats than we have under the real map. And so it means that although in the average year it would be Republican, it would also be more sensitive to changes in the political climate. But there's no a priori reason why you necessarily have to have districts be compact. It looks nicer on a map, but it arguably, I would agree with this argument, means the state is represented less well. And so, you know, so that's like to use that as a default criteria, and a few states do that explicitly, some do it implicitly, arguably that's not the best solution to, to how you should district a state. Do you have a solution that you think is the best? I think trying to have the state be as representative as possible. Representative of what? Representative of like the overall spread of, of voters in the state. Mm-hmm. There are various statistical measures of how representative a state is. The efficiency gap measures wasted votes. So how many people are in districts that are not competitive when they could be competitive? And you've had Democratic plaintiffs argue that like if that goes beyond a certain number, then the court should be able to throw the, the state's map out. You know, I tend to be a fan of that approach, right? And they're not saying that if there's a little bitty edge that it wouldn't it wouldn't square, but like to say like you cannot have a grossly misrepresentative efficiency gap when there are more fair ways to draw the map. Maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room, so there's a little bit of reward to how you do and and because there's no perfectly quote unquote objective standard for redistricting. You, know, you can always make arguments, but like, but it has to fall within certain guidelines or else it's just not fair to voters in that state. That's how I would do it, which would probably not eliminate the Republican redistricting edge, but might but might reduce it quite a bit. What I think is interesting about that, and actually connects to our, our quick conversation about whether or not one would change the constitution a couple minutes ago, is when you're using an efficiency gap approach to redistricting, what you're saying is the fundamental units of competition, and this is obviously true, are political parties. That you should be designing a system such that the competition between the political parties is fair. And one of the things that is bedeviling American politics a little bit is that the Constitution wasn't built for that at all. It's built to balance competition between states. It's built to balance competition a bit between people who worried about too much democracy when and, and they thought they needed more of an elite check on it. Over time, there's been a lot of other things we've, you know, then altered it to do, you know, to have more balanced, although certainly not truly fair yet, um, racial competition amongst voters to actually have more democracy by making senators directly elected. But we don't take political parties very seriously in the structure of our system. Like, we don't ask if they are being balanced against each other, either fairly or, for that matter, constructively, right? There's this whole issue that I think is a real problem about how political parties fuck up checks and balances because instead of having different branches of government compete, you have parties competing across branches of government and at times uniting all the branches of government together. But this seems to me to be a more radical change in our thinking that we often give a credit for. If we begin to say things like efficiency gap are the measure, what we're saying is our system should be built to balance competition between parties. We should take the parties as like the fundamental actors, which again, it's obviously how we talk about it, but it's remarkable given how clear it is that that is the case, how completely absent it is from our institutional design. Look, the House is the chamber designed to be the most representative of the current mood of the electorate. And by definition, only one third of senators are up every term. And so therefore, you know, if Democrats don't win the Senate, there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that voters gave the GOP a fairly powerful mandate based in 2014 and 2016. And so that's a deliberate hedge, even if Democrats were to do better in 2018. But like, but with the House, I mean, if you were to have a House where you have a six point Democratic popular vote win, 
and they don't take the majority of the House, that feels kind of broken to me, I think. You know, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but it seems like that's what we would ordinarily think of as like a, a landslide margin. I mean, Obama won by seven points in 2008, and people thought of that as a landslide. And if they weren't able to take the House, then then that seems screwed up. Um, and so maybe you need to put some some bumper rails on the redistricting process. All right, so I want to go back to the, the forecast itself. Let's take the 80% chance the Democrats will take the House. What, what, what does that mean? How would you describe what that 20% is saying? It means that if you had an infinitely large sample of elections, then in four out of five cases where the data looks like it does, Democrats would win the House. And in one out of five cases, Republicans would win the House. I want to dig into that because I think (laughs) that is a confusing concept because the election we have is the election we have. On on some level, like it's only – it is only one thing, right? It doesn't have that kind of element of chance. So it's saying that imagining that many elections like this one that look in the data like this one, X number of them would go this way and X number of them would go that way. Is that the way to put it? Yes. I mean it's – so let's start with the problem where you have like a lot more – Simpler and but more robust data, right? So right now, as we're taping this, the Boston Red Sox lead the series against the Houston Astros and the ALCS three games to one. So you could go back and say, okay, let's look at baseball history and out of all teams that led a series 3-1, how many of them wound up winning, you know? And then the answer might be, well, this has happened 100 times before and they won 79 times, so it's about 80%, right? And that could be like a very kind of simple empirical answer, the issue with the overall forecast for the Senate is that, like, you're extrapolating into specifics that you don't exactly have. This is, I don't know if this quite makes sense, right? But it's saying, like, there are enough parameters in the Senate model. I mean, how different, like, states line up and how accurate the polls are and non-polling data and whatever else, right? Then, like, there's, like, not a specific sample that exactly match these conditions mm-hmm. we have now. That's true. But you're trying to infer what it would look like if you did have, like, a large number of these races. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I don't know. If that's no, very that does. It. I, I'm trying to get at this too in in sort of a similar way, and, and so you can tell me if this makes sense because this is something that when I see people talk about it, it feels to me it creates confusion. And again, I actually just may be the one wrong on this. That people think that the uncertainty is about the election. That what you're saying is that there is like a 20 percent chance Democrats lose this election when. The uncertainty is about the model. The, 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 the actor there, like the, the noun in the sentence is the model. And it's like what the model has is a set of data describing an election that looks like this data. And in X number of elections that look like that, they go this way. And in Y number, they go the other way. I always think that uh, the, the conversation about the models, it always reminds me of Q-tips, <laughs> that um, people buy Q-tips and like on the box, it has this like in big letters, do not put these in your ears. Just do whatever you want with them, but do not put Q-tips in your yeah. ears. And it's like, yeah. ha you know, like, like what would you do with Q-tips aside from like jam them in your ears? And I sometimes think that the models are like that, that everybody behind the models are these unbelievably great probabilistic thinkers. And they're saying, like, do not use this for certainty. Like, this is not – and everybody's like, oh, uh, but you know what I'm going to (laughs) do? You said 80 percent. Like, that means they're going to win. (laughs) Well, and this year we're trying to fade this 20 percent risk twice where either if polls shift only a little bit toward Democrats and all of a sudden – the Senate becomes competitive again if they shift only a little bit toward Republicans and all of a sudden the House becomes competitive again, right? So there's a 40% chance that one of those two forecasts will be wrong. They probably won't both be wrong because of the way races are correlated, it's very unlikely that you'll have a Democratic Senate but a Republican House. But yeah, people, I think, 
don't always take the message about uncertainty. And it's also ultimately a statement about humility, right? Like I can tell you like the polls right now show that Republicans will win the Senate, right? That's what the polls say. So what my model is saying is, okay, how reliable are the polls given this fairly complex set of circumstance where there are 10 or 12 states where you have a competitive race? And the answer is that they're pretty good, but but not perfect. And so therefore there's a 20% chance that that the polls and their data we look at is wrong, right? So it's kind of meant in some ways to be statements of humility and it doesn't come across that way. I think when you kind of use numbers, people's brains, a switch flips or something else, right? And it's a lot easier. And also like, you know, news organizations can, I mean, it's flipped back and forth, right? It used to be that like, News organizations were very hesitant to take risks by characterizing the horse race in any way at all. So even a case like 2008, where Obama was way, way, way ahead of John McCain, you had like the conventional wisdom was like, it could go either way. The panelists on the McLaughlin group on the week before the election said it's a toss up, which it obviously wasn't. And somehow that flipped to like a kind of demand for certainty. And, you know, we kind of got caught up in this where it's like, look, in different elections, the data says different things. That's a kind of simple statement, right? But like in in 2016, we weren't trying to make a philosophical argument about uncertainty when our model showed Donald Trump with a 30% chance, which people thought was too high at the time, not afterward, but beforehand, right? We were saying like, that's what the data says, that like Donald Trump is doing well, relatively speaking, in the electoral college as compared to the popular vote. There are a ton of undecided voters. And so therefore, it's not the pollster's job to project what undecideds do, but it adds to uncertainty. It was a highly volatile election where there are big news events every couple of weeks, and that made Clinton's lead less safe. And so it's like, you know, our job is not to not to create the data, but to interpret the data and to tell you how reliable the data is. And that's something which I think is hard to do, number one, and kind of kind of underappreciated, number two. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You said that there there's a 40% chance in, in your data that either Democrats fail to win the House or Republicans fail to keep the Senate. If you had to bet on which of those is likelier, which would you go to? I mean, right now, it's been very back and forth. You know, our model says that Democrats are a little bit more likely to win the Senate than Republicans are to win the House. If you go to betting markets, then they say the opposite is true. But it's pretty close. Close enough, but by the time this podcast airs, the answer might might change. I mean, I think like on the Senate side, it's a bit more intuitive why Democrats are underdogs. I mean, you can go state by state and look at the polls in these states and say, okay, 
there are not enough states right now where Democrats are ahead in the polls or even tied, really, right? If you were very, very, very generous, you could say Tennessee is still tied. I think that's way too generous to Democrats at this point. But like, you kind of look at the math and understand that one a little bit easier. In the House, I mean, this is composed of, you know, it's more like micro data, right? It's like we're looking at 435 districts of which something like 105 are plausibly competitive. And you're looking at polls and most of those districts, but not a ton of polling. You had fundraising data. You have the history of the vote. You have other indicators and so forth. And so that's kind of like closer to like a, a kind of big data <laughs> type projection. And it's like not necessarily obvious like when, when you see a new House poll in some swing district, what that necessarily means. But Republicans are defending an awful lot of vulnerable seats in the House. And the bet is that it's just too much territory to defend. We don't know exactly where the Democratic pickups will come. But, you know, if there are 95 or 100 seats the GOP is defending that are plausible pickups and Democrats only need to net 23 of those, then not impossible for the GOP to hold the House, but but quite challenging. So let's say you're looking at two forecasts. One, yours, let's say, says Democrats have an 80% chance of, of winning back the House. And another says, no, 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 they have a 90% chance. And like, who knows, maybe like a third says they have a 65% chance, and they don't win back the House. So it's obviously consistent with all of those forecasts. How do you decide which model was accurate once it resolves down to a single outcome? I mean, you even had this fight in, in 2016 with the Huffington Post where they had a model that said like 99% chance Hillary Clinton wins the election. Yeah. Um, and you guys were saying 65. And so I think it, like clearly people looked at that and said, well, you were right, right? That it was clearly not a 99% chance. But on the other hand, like plausibly, um, if there was a 1% chance Donald Trump could win, he might have just come up with that 1%. How do you think about assessing these models in the aftermath, given that all of them can say, no, 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 we said there was a chance Democrats could lose a house? So in, this is a very on-brand answer, in a, in a Bayesian sense, if you don't know which model is right and you only have one trial, then the model that gave Trump a 30% chance is almost certainly right versus a model that gave him a 1% chance. Just because when you get out on the tails of the distribution and you have only one sample, only one election to evaluate, if you get out and you really are making statements like, like 95%, 99%, 99.9%, then one election can't prove you're wrong, but it can make it very, very likely that you're wrong. Conversely, like a 70% forecast for Hillary versus 85% was the New York Times upshots. Those are actually not that different because I think of it in terms of like ratios, right? We're saying, we were saying that Trump was going to win one out of three or one out of four times. And they were saying that Trump was going to win one out of six times, right? That's not that different. Huffington Post was saying he was going to win one out of a hundred times. So that really is quite different. But yeah, look, in the long run, you know, I think the only way to test a model is to see if its projections are well calibrated over a large sample of data, meaning that like when you have an 80% forecast, then the favorite is supposed to win about eight out of 10 times and the favorite is supposed to lose about two out of 10 times. You know, and we have gone back and, and looked at our forecasts on a state-by-state -state basis where you do have a larger sample. We've also done this for like our basketball forecasts or our NCAA tournament forecasts, whatever else. And they generally wind up being well calibrated. So when we say there's a 95% chance of something, that is going to be wrong, quote unquote, one out of 20 times. 
but it hopefully should not be wrong a lot more than one out of 20 times. But that's, that's part of the issue is that like people will go and like cherry pick the cases where, where you're wrong, right? We are making between the house, the Senate and governor's races, I think 506 or 507 forecasts <laughs> this year. And if you want to after the election, go and pick the four or the 10 or the 12 of those 500 that look the stupidest, then you can make us look really dumb, but like, um, but that's not the, that's not the kind of fair and scientific or journalistically uh, responsible way to evaluate forecasts. Here's a deeper question that I think this brings up. Like metaphysically, what is the point of all these election forecasts? The, the election will turn out to be, you know, one, one thing or the other. Are you just satisfying curiosity about it or is there some deeper purpose to, to having this conversation and, and to doing this kind of work? Like, wh what do you see the role of these forecasts as doing in, in American politics or in voter information? I think they combat bullshit media narratives, basically. <laughs> it's saying, look, for better or worse, there is a ton of interest in elections, including the horse race aspect of elections. So who's going to win? And the media provides a lot of horse race coverage. And to be honest, is not that good at it because it requires interpreting data in ways that are honestly pretty complex. Like the Electoral College of figuring out who has an edge in the Electoral College is a fairly complex problem, right? Figuring out how do these 435 districts line up is a fairly complex problem when you don't even have like polling in, in a lot of them. I mean, the whole premise of 538 was not that like we're noble and above it all. It's like, here's this thing that the media does badly. There's a ton of interest in that we do well because we actually have expertise in statistics and modeling and we can make really awesome looking graphics because we have expertise in that too. I mean, that's all it is, right? It's not saying that like the horse race is particularly noble <laughs> or anything else that people should be paying attention to that and not reading other things, but that's the promise. And I think we've fulfilled that promise. I think in general, in the cases where, where we've been wrong, we've still often been less wrong than other people. <laughs> so, you know, that's how I think of things. What do you think campaign reporting can be good at? I mean, if you had, if, if just life worked out such that you had a fleet of, you know, 40 political reporters, but they weren't statistical wizards, if you're going out to, to try to have that kind of on-the-ground reporting, what do you think the value of it is? What are the kinds of stories you read in that space you think this is helping my knowledge of what's going on versus the kinds of stories where you read them think this is probably misleading me about what's going on? I mean, so there are some cases, you know, certainly for the House, you could have reporters fan out and go into some of these districts that are on the fringes of the radar. And, you know, so there's a, a House race in Alaska, for example, where the Democrat is polling fairly close to the Republican incumbent, Don Young. You know, send a reporter out to Alaska and see if that's real or not, because the polling is not all that good in Alaska. You know, in some sense, actually, so there are groups like like the Cook Political Report, where they will issue ratings of each race, and they're very quantitatively minded. I mean, I know the people there, and they look at the same things that we do, but they also, in, in essence, do sort of on-the-ground reporting, too, and they actually add a fair amount of value. Um, we use them as part of one of our forecasts, is borrow their ratings to help inform our model. And so, you know, that's a case where it's very dis disciplined and very rigorous, and it's trying to solve what you might call like the the last mile problem, right? It's not saying, oh, throw out everything. Let's go to a district that's 30 points Republican in Texas and profile Democrat and say she's going to win, right? It's saying, okay, we can get about 80% of the way there with looking at the polls plus basics like how partisan is a certain district in what direction, whatever else. Maybe look at fundraising and things like that. But using that as a basis, we will then 
try to close the gap a little bit further by by reporting out these ambiguous and challenging cases, right? You know, if campaign reporting was more like that, that kind of accepted the premise of like the data is mostly right, but let's look at the edge cases. Let's look at cases where the data is confusing or not that informative. I mean, that would be a lot more more helpful. You know, I think during the early phase of the presidential campaign, where the polls are not very good, where pundits guesses, I mean, we were very skeptical about Trump winning the Republican nomination for a pretty long time, and that we do take the blame for. But like fanning out to Iowa or New Hampshire, I mean, that's really valuable insight, I think. It's kind of the clustering reporters in like, you know, in Texas. I mean, Texas is a race where it's an interesting state, but like the polls are very, very consistent there, and there's a lot of polling. It's not certain that Ted Cruz will win, but like, you know, that's one where we've probably had enough reporting. We can just wait and see what actually happens. And then if something unexpected happens, then there's a reason to say maybe Texas changed more than we thought. You know, there's no need for a reporter to go interview voters in a diner in Pennsylvania when we have 13 polls of Pennsylvania. But the under-the-radar contest of which there are plenty in the House, of which early stage of the presidential primaries, even a few Senate races are undercover. There's a race in Mississippi where where you have a special election primary on November 6th, and there are oddball scenarios by which Democrats could pick up a seat there. I've seen like almost no reporting on that. Instead of trying to paint this whole picture with reporting, it's saying, okay, actually a data-driven-ish approach should be your baseline for campaign horse race coverage. And then you use reporting to fill it in instead of the reverse where it's like, okay, let's construct this whole narrative based on reporting and then we'll kind of cross-check it against some data at the end. I mean, I would flip the polarity of that, I think. And I'm not saying, by the way, that like data is great for every type of reporting you might be doing. I mean, you know, we don't really have a great data-driven way to cover the Russia stuff, you know? <laughs> so I really, really appreciate the New York Times and the Post and the amazing reporting they do on that story. But this is just one of those areas where like, where the way we do it is actually just more informative. And that's just, you know, it has to do with the parameters of the problem that you're studying. The data is pretty good. And by the way, and polling is a form of reporting too, where you are going out and interviewing, albeit in a very rigorous and kind of limited way, but you're going out and interviewing 1,000 like real Americans. And so, and so polling is a very pure kind of an original form of, of going out and talking to people. I, I like that insight a lot, by the way, that polling is a form of reporting. Um, I, I want to come back in a second to this question of what data can and can't answer, but who are the campaign reporters who don't work for you, they, that you read? Who do you follow? I like a lot of the Washington Post reporting. I like Dave Weigel in particular. You know, I like some of the stuff. I, mean, I tend to read stuff that's like more inside baseball, right? I like the Politico type stories for campaign reporting where they give you some sense of maybe what the campaigns are thinking. You know, one thing that's good about like certain outlets is like they'll say, okay, here's what the campaign thinks and here's the argument they're presenting, right? You know, one of my critiques with the New York Times' campaign reporting is they tend to collapse the distance between the source and the voice of the story. And so if Republicans think um, they have a chance to beat Menendez in New Jersey, that will come out not as a story saying Republicans think they have a chance to win in New Jersey. It'll come out saying they have a chance in New Jersey without designating that like there were sources who have a certain incentive to believe a certain thing who who thought that. But no, you know, I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, honestly, like I'm not sure that I read a ton of campaign reporting um, when you get this close to an election that isn't like necessarily – stuff that's that's quite data-driven. How do you define data journalism? I mean, we're trying to move away from <laughs> from that term, right? And part of like the reason why we call it data journalism was just because it was ambiguous enough that you could assign a lot of meanings to it. You know, look, I think 
what I'm really a fan of is is rigorous empirical journalism, right? Or evidence-based journalism is a snarky way to put it. And so any statement you make in any article you write, you should either be able to prove it with facts or you should make clear kind of what your state of knowledge is about that statement, whether it's a fact or a debated fact or an opinion. It's fine to speculate. It's fine to spitball and speculate as long as that's kind of advertised properly. But I think what we kind of really stand for is more rigor and overlap with that There are some areas, you know, obviously we specialize in sports and politics and to a lesser extent science reporting. There are a fair number of areas where just point blank, having good statistical knowledge and knowing how to build a model, knowing how to evaluate data in kind of a more academic-y way where that just happens to be a really valuable skill set for certain topics. And so it's the kind of overlap between saying, hey, we want rigor on the one hand and on the other hand saying, okay, there actually are cases where a cool way to cover the NBA is to build a forecast model for the NBA and for individual players. So it's kind of the overlap of of those two things, I think. So I, I want to push on you a little bit about this. Um, and I think I'm going to be complimenting you, but possibly <laughs> it will it will be taken the other way if you guys are moving away from this as a brand. <laughs> so we started about the same time, 5.30 in a box. And uh, people often looked at us and said, you guys are data journalism. And I would always say, no, we're not. I, I do think we are rigorous empirical journalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think in that broader tent, we're there. But what I was always really fascinated by in what you did and the way sort of I've always defined data journalism is that data journalism is journalism that is finding its stories through data. That what has always struck me as the kind of secret to what you do is not that you have this model. Actually, a lot of people now have a model. There are tons of models floating around. But that you and your team, you're much better than other people are for the most part. Um, I think the upshot is good at it. There are a couple other people who are good at it. At looking in your model to constantly see stories in the data that you can then explain, report further on, whatever it might be. Um, you, you, I think, were alluding to this a couple minutes ago that you would like to see campaign reporting be built off of a data platform, you know, where you're saying, okay, this is the race the data says we should cover, as opposed to, say, Beto O'Rourke is super charismatic and he goes viral a lot, so yeah. we, should, we should cover him. Like, I've always thought that what people miss about you a bit, like when, in all this kind of talk about you being a math wizard, is it like you're a really remarkable chief correspondent of Nate Silver's spreadsheet? <laughs> and the difference between a lot of places, it seems to me, is that if you can build these models that are feeding you story ideas and then build the stories off of those ideas, like that's a real amazing spot where if you just have the model feeding out numbers, like that can be interesting, but it's not that much. If you're just designing stories out of your gut, I mean, well, we all do that. It's like that space in between that makes what you all do and I think what a couple other competitors of yours do pretty unique. Yeah, look, when we have new reporters come on board, particularly reporters who are fairly data-minded, I have to remind them and the other editors remind them, the story is not the model, right? The story is the election and the model is a pretty robust and interesting tool in a prism through which to cover the election. But the story is always the election itself. But no, I agree. I think like there are a lot of models and the way that we present ours graphically, number one, and the way that we talk about it on podcasts and in articles and whatever else, I mean, that's kind of where, that's where a lot of the value is, I think. Because I hopefully, you know, you do learn a lot about, for example, the importance of gerrymandering in in the House, right? Or the kind of structural disadvantage in the Senate or whatever else, right? Or how partisanship works. You know, you learn a lot about politics if you kind of follow our election updates. And the longer we've done this, 
the more we've moved from an update, meaning a written update, it used to be like, okay, there's a new poll in New Jersey saying this, a new poll in Arizona saying that, right? It's less now the play-by-play and more of the more of the color commentary and more of, you know, I mean, so one way in which I think 538 um, and Vox are a lot alike is that both have this urge to unpack and explain complex topics to people and to treat the reader as intelligent and to say, okay, we're going to be very transparent in how we're breaking this problem apart and go into a lot of detail. And we're hoping that you'll appreciate that. And we probably have very, very similar audiences, but there are a lot of people who who appreciate that. And that's kind of the, the end goal here, I think. I also think one of the interesting things about it, and, and I know a little bit less about the sports side of it, but it's always seemed to me that election reporting has this huge problem, which is interest in the election begins, let's say, eight months before it. And in some cases, like with 2020, way before that. But but let's say for a midterm, like people begin paying attention eight months before it. And as you get closer, it's like the level of interest goes way up. But the amount that's actually changing in the election that you know doesn't really. I mean, you can do a story any day of the week, but you don't really know of anything changing. You're sort of waiting for that information. And what's always struck me as really interesting about what you guys do is that you kind of covered the model covering the election. Like the model changes a little bit each day. And, and when I look at your stories and the way you you assign them or, or, or construct them, it's like, okay, today the Senate and House forecasts are diverging. Or today we're seeing shakiness in this part of it. And that that is a way of really the question people want to see answered every single day is who will win. Like that's really the only thing people care about in elections. They don't care about the campaign. Like all the other stuff is like shadows on the wall. They care about who will win. And the model creates a different way of writing about that story every single day. Whereas I think what traditional journalism has done traditionally has been a much more attenuated way of writing about that story. You're writing about something much further away from that story because nothing that you realize has changed in that story um, day to day. Whereas the model gives you, you know, something. You can always see something changing in the election the model is running that day. And trying to explain what's changing and why strikes me as like actually getting a lot closer to where the reader's interest really is. It can also ground reporting priorities to some extent, right? If we had a forecast saying Republicans have a four and five chance of winning the Senate, and then every article we ran was, hey, here's why Democrats have a chance in state X, you know, that would feel really off, right? And so it dictates the priorities for our coverage too in ways that that I hope are helpful. But, you know, we've tried to emphasize that the ups and the downs and the models a bit less, and some elections are more stable and more volatile than others. Midterms tend to develop slowly, one district at a time. You know, if you look at our forecast, particularly in the House, it just hasn't changed that much since August when we launched it. You know, Democrats have never been higher than about 83, 84% or lower than about 70%. It just really hasn't changed that much, and so it doesn't necessarily lend itself as much to dramatic narratives. I mean, sometimes in presidential campaigns, that can happen. You know, clearly there were big shifts in the polls that occurred in 2016. I actually think some of the coverage kind of aired too far in the other direction in 2016, where it's like, oh, you know, sure, these 15 polls have all shifted toward Trump, but, you know, it's not, uh, doesn't mean anything. It's like, yes, it did, right? After the Comey letter, for example, it meant a lot, obviously, in the presidential race. But like I said, we're, we're trying not to, like, just narrate the play-by-play as much. And instead, we're always trying to, like, either zoom way in or zoom way out, right? So zoom way out and say, what's the big picture, right? You hear all this data, get all this, all these narratives that you hear. Hey, has anything actually changed in the race for Congress? Or you use them really far in and say, okay, here are the 43 districts where Democrats uh, raised a ton more money than Republicans last month. And what do we learn from that? 
instead of this kind of medium level where I think coverage becomes very, very kind of predictable and, and boring. I'd actually like to talk a little bit about Donald Trump from the model perspective because I think that one of the valuable things models do is discipline your intuitions, right? And I think that we often have an intuition Donald Trump should be somewhere and that we see the numbers that he's somewhere else. And a lot of journalism right now is trying to decide how to how to think through and talk through that gap. So last I looked, Trump is at about 43% in the polls. It could have gone up a point or two, but right about there. How do you interpret that 43%? Is Donald Trump high for where we would expect him to be, given his behavior and the fundamentals? Is he low for where we would expect him to be? Like, what does that 43% tell us about Donald Trump? 43% is a lot lower than you would expect based on the economy. So one thing it's saying is that everything apart from the economy matters too. So even though consumers feel very good about where we are, even though the stock market is way up, even though the unemployment rate's way down, um, inflation is low, I mean, across the board, you can talk about how gains are distributed, but like pretty good economic data. And despite that, he's at 43%. And so that's kind of sends in contrast to the idea that none of this other stuff matters. I don't know what proportion of that is Bob Mueller versus like Trump's overall demeanor versus him tweeting too much versus, you know, kind of having rivalries with our NATO allies and stuff like that. But, but it's like, all that stuff does matter. Otherwise, he'd probably be at, it's a partisan country, so he probably would not be at 60%. Probably see the numbers reverse. He'd be at 55%. Approve 43% disapprove instead of the reverse or whatever it is. And so it's a sign that like all this matters. At the same time, 43% is in the historical range of where presidents often find themselves at the midterms and those presidents nonetheless went on to win re-election. So Trump is no longer that far behind Obama or Reagan or Clinton at these points, maybe a little bit, but not a ton. And so and so that ought to be a reminder to people too that like it's pretty normal for a president to be encountering problems two years into his presidency and pretty normal for that president to then lose badly at the midterms and then win re-election two years after that. And so that should <laughs> that should provide some dose of reality, I think, to, to people. I, I always think it's remarkable, actually, to, to your point about the economy, that Obama was more popular at 9%, 10% unemployment than Donald Trump is at 3.8% unemployment. That, that, to me, always is like the evidence that there's something very real here. And on the other side, uh, again, as you say, if you had told me that you would have a president behaving, talking, acting, having the kinds of scandals, having the kind of staff chaos that Donald Trump has, and you'd ask me where that president would be, I would have said, well, lower than 40%, right? Like, that's a drop through the floor kind of condition. And so there's a way in which I find his approval ratings very dizzying. Uh, like, I can tell a lot of stories about them. But but one of the stories I'm interested in hearing you tell about it is, in general, a, a reasonably simple model of elections is that incumbents tend to win. And at presidential elections, incumbents almost always tend to win. I mean, there are George H.W. Bush. Obviously, there are, there are exceptions. But the incumbent is a favorite. Do you think, given what we've seen in Donald Trump's numbers, that we should just as a baseline say the incumbent is a favorite? Or should we say Donald Trump acts in such an unusual way that that is not true in this case? My prior is that it's probably in the neighborhood of 50-50. Of if I went and spent three days thinking about that, I might come up with a different answer. But yeah, I mean, we also, I think because the Mueller investigation went not on hiatus, he's doing stuff in the background, but like that we hit the pause button on that tape, that was starting to spin out in ways that were pretty risky to Trump. And we're going to press the play button on that one way or another after the midterms again, and there are real liabilities there for Trump. 
Although approval ratings two years out are not terribly predictive, approval ratings one year out or so begin to become more meaningful. So if he remains um, at 43% or so by this time next year, then you might start to get a little bit worried and say it's not the typical 70% incumbent reelect. It's maybe closer to 50-50. But it does also help to like abstract things to an extent where if you kind of take Trump's name out of it and just say a generic Republican president, okay, so if you'd had a generic Republican president in 2016, I think people would have recognized more that the poll showed a close race, that yes, the Democrat was ahead in some but not all the places that she needed to be. But the Republican was competitive and that it wouldn't take that much for the Republican to win, right? And then, you know, I think the midterms were like, okay, well, um, typically at a midterm, then um, then the president's party loses seats and that'll probably happen now. Maybe enough seats that Democrats will win the House, in fact. And then the incumbent party's president usually wins re-election despite losing the House or the Senate. And so, you know, in that very abstract sense, it's all kind of been, been fairly normal, <laughs> you know? That obviously leaves a lot out too, but like, you know, I'll put it like this. Out of all the many reasons in 2016 to think Donald Trump could never become president, the polls were the least good reason for that, (laughs) right? The polls showed him the whole kind of time, or at least kind of wire to wire, leading the Republican nomination process. And the polls showed him trailing Clinton, but but by a pretty narrow margin, especially and most importantly at the end of the election. And so so the polls were the least reason to be surprised by Trump. I I think this is actually one of the huge lessons. So I'll sometimes give a presentation about this. And one of the things I say is that the key question with Donald Trump is, is he Donald Trump or is he a Republican? Because if he's a Republican, then there's nothing that complicated to explain about 2016. How did a Republican win a presidential election? Well, Republicans sometimes win presidential elections. It was a third term for the Democrats. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on. Hillary Clinton was unpopular. And then if you say, well, how did Donald Trump win? That is a question that feels like it needs a lot more explanatory firepower pointed at it. And something I'll do in this presentation is I'll show exit poll numbers for different groups going back through the last four presidential elections, and I'll just take out the names and years. And what you see with Trump is that his coalition doesn't change very much at all. For all the discussion of Obama to Trump voters, overwhelmingly, he looks like the 2012 coalition, which looks more or less like the 2008 coalition. There's changes on the margins, which is how you get different outcomes. But It's changes on the margins. Just, again, overwhelmingly, people just do what they did before. And I think one of the real lessons is that the party system is so strong now, or or let me say it differently, partisanship is so strong now. The parties are in many ways very weak that Donald Trump, the the key thing he was able to do was consolidate Republican support. And that has remained. He's remained at 85 90% Republican support during his presidency too. And I just think that's a pretty profound lesson. I was somebody who I think compared to most political reporters weighted partisanship very heavily. Like I'm very well-versed in polarization literature and and all that social science. And yet I would have thought that a candidate acting as aberrantly as Donald Trump would have had more trouble consolidating and turning in a normal party performance. I think he probably – lost two to four percentage points off of what a generic Republican could have done. I think Marco Rubio would have beat Hillary Clinton by more. But Donald Trump managed to just be the Republican in the race. That's mostly why he won. 
And I think the implications of that are more profound than we give it credit for, particularly given how much the two political parties seem to have lost control of their primaries. Because if kind of anybody can win a political primary, but once you do that, you're more or less guaranteed the support of your party. Like that's a real way that the political system can create very unusual um, presidential outcomes. Yeah, and you can kind of compare the U.S. election to a system like France where you have multiple parties and where partisanship is less strong and there – the kind of nationalist candidate got whatever she got, you know, 21% of the vote up to, I forget what it was, like 36% when you force people to make a, a two-way choice. But yeah, look, I mean, that was the big untold story is that Republicans, maybe it was predictable ahead of time, maybe it wasn't. 90% of the problems who would have voted for Marco Rubio voted for Trump. The more technical part of the story is probably the 10% who didn't might be in states that Clinton was going to win anyway. And so his coalition happens to play really well in the Electoral College. But yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of <laughs> the essential story of the presidential election is that parties are very powerful brands and a party leader who explicitly told off the previous three Republican nominees. He insulted John McCain. He insulted, um, I mean, not insulted, but was like not very complimentary to the Bushes, obviously, not a big fan of Mitt Romney. And so he's saying all these guys you picked before, right, are not what you really want. I'm the guy you really want. I mean, it's, it's almost like a hostile takeover of the party, right? Because Trump in some ways more resembled, especially the version of the campaign trail before he kind of became more disciplined by Mitch McConnell and people, you know, he was saying some things that were fairly against Republican orthodoxy with respect to foreign policy in particular, and he didn't really pay that much of a price for it. So we always use these terms kind of partisanship and ideology as overlapping. But one thing this showed is that like partisanship seems to Trump ideology. You can Absolutely. say a bunch of stuff that's like really off-brand, right? And partisanship plus culture trumps like the abstract Marco Rubio way of, of politics. Do you think the Democratic and Republican parties are relatively symmetrical in this way? Do you think that the institutional weaknesses that Trump exploited or illuminated on the Republican side, they're there on the Democratic side for an outsider candidate to, to exploit in the same way? No, not really. I mean, I think Democrats are moving more discernibly toward the left. And I do mean kind of the left more than the liberal wing of the party. And that seems to be relatively new. So for a long time, you would have people say, hey, there's asymmetric polarization. Republicans are moving to the right and Democrats are staying where they were before, right? I think that's no longer true. I think Republicans are moving to the right and Democrats are moving to the left, except the GOP started doing that about 15 or 20 years sooner. So they've moved further overall. But apart from that, no, I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think there's obviously a very strong appeal to populism. There is a critique of elites. There's a critique of the media embedded in what Trump is doing. And there's a very strong appeal to race. I know you guys have run a lot of articles on this, but like if you look at things that correlate with racial attitudes and you look at where Trump gains support, the map kind of lights up. If you do that with economic variables, then there's some correlation, but not, not as convincing or as strong in the data. And so it's some combination of that that I think was responsible for it. I mean, you know, obviously Democrats do, I don't know if I'm a fan of the term identity politics. Obviously there is a fair bit <laughs> of that too, but I just don't think they're, they're parallel. I mean, Democrats might have their own hangups, but I don't think they have the same thing where grievance plays the same role. Maybe it will eventually, especially if Democrats have like a bad midterm, but the sense of grievance is very powerful for Trump and for Republican voters, you know, the Romney type voters who are, I guess, kind of probably pretty well off. And if you want to use the term privilege, fairly privileged for them to feel they're part of this aggrieved minority almost 
was was interesting, I think. Yeah, and I, I think this is a very, very, very powerful force. You know, I've written a lot about this in this piece, White Thread in a Browning America, but I think the feeling of being a majority coalition that fears that it is in the minority, I think you see it a little bit with Donald Trump's incredible sensitivity to whether or not he actually won a popular vote victory and whether his electoral college victory was a landslide. This feeling that maybe the numbers are turning on you, even if they haven't really turned on you yet, it's a very psychologically motivating feeling. It's a very powerful thing. In the time we have left, though, because uh, I want to make sure I, I get a couple minutes to do this, you and I we mentioned started uh, organizations at about the same time. You've been running 538 for about five years now. What have you learned? What, what, what's been harder or different or more interesting about starting and managing and guiding a new media organization in this climate than you had expected? I mean, lately I've tried to learn how to outsource more. <laughs> I take <laughs> You know, and focus on kind of what my strengths are. And we've had some conversations about that offline and so forth. But look, I think it takes a while to get good at what you're doing. So it takes some time. So it's always very hard when you're launching a product, and you guys will know this firsthand, to like appropriately gauge expectations. Because on the one hand, yep. you want to like have it be top of mind for people. On the other hand, you're probably going to suck whenever you launch something new. You're going to suck in some ways that you do expect and a lot of ways that you don't expect. And things that you think are going to be simple and which might be simple two years in will be really hard. So, you know, kind of managing expectations a bit more carefully, choosing how many battles you fight. But I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the version of, of 538 that we have now is a little bit more explicitly kind of playing to our strengths than before. We, we used to have five verticals who are trying to cover economics, we're trying to cover culture, and we've pared that down to three. So politics, sports, and science are kind of our core three. And so it's like, I think realizing that like, you don't have to be, and in fact, you will fail by trying to be all things to all people. Find your audience, serve that audience well, write things in a way that if someone's new, that's an inviting place in terms of the way the copy is written, in terms of the visualizations, in terms of the way it, it looks, the product on your phone and whatever else. So it's an inviting place to be. But don't try to be all things <laughs> to all people. Media is inherently a niche business, right? The, the largest media businesses in the world still only have a tiny fraction of their country's populations watching them or reading them every day. And so, you know, that I think is, is helpful. That like a lot of people won't get when we make a probabilistic forecast and why we say, hey, if we say there's an 80% chance and the 20% chance happens, doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong. A lot of people won't get that. And at some point, I don't care because <laughs> the people who don't get that don't have to read our site. When you're hiring for 538 at this point for a reporter, what do you, what do you look for? What have you found works? I mean, we have a pretty wide range of people who range from being never picked up a phone in their life, people who are very traditional reporters who we've made work well at 538. But in some sense, I'm looking for, I'm looking for people who are curious. I'm looking for people who are skeptical, right? So they have kind of good habits of mind. You know, looking for people who, who are nice people, which sounds, maybe sounds like very archaic, but like, I think I have learned here that when you have someone who is difficult to manage, that outweighs by like a factor of three any possible productivity they could provide to your workforce at the margin, right? It just eats up time from highly paid managers. It depletes morale among your colleagues. And so trying to avoid hiring people who are jerks, I mean, that's, that's a lot of it, I think. I completely agree with that lesson. One of the things I wonder about, you were talking about not being all things to all people. 538 has this really deep specialization in, in elections. I think when an election is going on, you basically can't not read 538. How do you think about 538 during periods of governance? Um, you know, if 
in 2020, a Democrat wins the presidency and things stabilize a little bit on the election side. What do you think is sort of the 538 angle on governance? Uh, I can go on vacation finally. No, um, <laughs> look, so we have come up with tools to evaluate what Congress is doing. For example, mm-hmm. we have something called a Trump score that measures simply how often each member of Congress has voted with Trump and compares them to how an average member from, from their state or district would perform. You know, we did a lot of work on on redistricting, had a whole what we called an atlas of redistricting. You know, obviously something like a healthcare debate, we think that can play to our strengths, maybe not as well as we can't cover it as well as Vox, because you guys have Sarah Cliff and whatever else. But you know, you can do some that is a story that favors rigor about both the policies that are being debated and the vote counting and the whip counting and the incentives that different members of Congress have. So some stories line up pretty well, and there, there are weird oddball things that we can do well, like because weather forecasting involves a lot of math and science. When a hurricane is coming, then we can actually cover that story pretty well. There are also big blind spots. I mean, like I said, like every time Russia is in the news, we're not really sure how to cover it, and it definitely doesn't play to our strengths. But, you know, I mean, honestly, elections are going on <laughs> a lot of the time, right? Probably in the midterm, you probably have a good six months where people are really interested in the midterm. In the presidential year, you have a year and a half, really, from the middle of next summer when you have the primaries heating up through next November, that's kind of an on period for elections too. And so, especially you're like in an on period for elections half the time. The other half the time, you still have sports and you have other things you can pick and choose from a bit. Or you sometimes get lucky and have really interesting like special elections. For example, like we had in Alabama with uh, Roy Moore or going back a bit in Massachusetts with Scott Brown in 2010. One of the things you mentioned a minute ago is something I've thought a lot about at Vox, which is you guys do a pretty good job, and it sounds like you've done an even better job recently in terms of paring down in deciding which pitches not to swing at. And when you're building an organization, um, even when you're just running it, there are advantages to scale, business advantages, but also you want to reach people, you want to be in the conversation. And I think a lot about what are the boundaries between Yes, we can apply our approach to that story well, even if it's not something we have people who are expert on, versus we should just let that one go by. Like, we just let a lot of sports stuff go by. We just don't really cover sports much at Vox. I mean, we do some in video and, and other places, but, but in general, we don't. How do you build that identity within the organization so that there is, in a like distributed way among you and among, but also among your editors and writers, a sort of knowledge that, yeah, everybody may be talking about that thing, but we don't need to, and that's okay. I mean, it's just, it's just acknowledging that in the first place, right? It's like acknowledging that like there are lots of stories that are major stories, and we don't have to cover them because we don't have anything interesting to say about them, right? I mean, it's just kind of that basic realization goes against what a large newsroom would think, right? The New York Times or the Washington Post would never say, you know what? We don't have good reporters on this flood that occurred in Louisiana, so let's not cover it, right? <laughs> you know, so that approach itself is pretty different. And then and then it's just kind of learning, honestly, by trial and error. I mean, like one reason why it's so hard to launch anything, you know, 90% of what you learn, you learn through trial and error in most things, right? Um, and when you haven't had any trial, then you're going to make a lot of error, I guess. And so it's just kind of learning like, okay, here's the thing we can do and we're pretty efficient and here's the thing we can't. So unfortunately... One recurring story that happens a lot in American politics is there's a mass shooting, right? And so we did a big story about gun violence in America a couple of years ago that was very, we hoped, comprehensive. And so when a mass shooting happens, we will refer people to that instead of necessarily trying to provide a bunch of new angles on it. And so it's just kind of like, you know, 
the 12 or 15 or 20 different types of news cycles or stories that come up that, that make the news cycle, just having more experience with more different types of those stories and you know which muscles you can flex and which ones you can't. You know, you can, I think, sometimes become a little bit too conservative and say, okay, well, we tried this once, you know, maybe something you tried in like the early years that failed, not because it was a bad idea, because you were just bad at everything back then, you know? So I think probably sometimes we should, we should go back and resurrect older things. We've always struggled, for example, with how to write short. Um, you know, we have this idea like, oh, what if we had a bunch of like 300 or 400 word posts and like, it just, I don't know why it hasn't happened. We should probably try it again. Um, but it is just trial and error, most of it. I think that's a good place to, to bring us to a close. I know you have a lot more forecasting to do, but let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you and the way you look at the world that you'd recommend to the audience? I'm not sure if these are like books necessarily that like have influenced me that much. It's kind of things that are like a little bit more top of mind. So I'll give you one, I'll give you my kind of classic answer to this, kind of the one book I would recommend as a baseline for helping to you to think smartly. And then I'll give you kind of two things that I've read recently that may or may not be on brand, but which I, which I've liked. So the classic book that I always recommend to people is thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, um, who just, it's the best tour I think of, of kind of cognitive biases and the various ways in which when looking at data or complex problems that our initial instincts can deceive us. So that book I would recommend. So I recently read the book Bad Blood, which was about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes by John. Am I saying this right? John Carreyou. Have you had him on the podcast? I haven't, but but the book is great. The book is great. And like just the the degree of fraud that was occurring here and how many people were involved in it. I mean, it's, you know, and the thing about the the writing, it's very modest and austere, almost newspaper prose, right? He's not embellishing a lot. And so he's kind of letting the action speak for themselves. I think that got sold to be a documentary or a movie. And so I'm sure that will be like a more dramatic version of it. But it's like, it's very straight laced reporting that kind of just lets this crazy story speak for itself a little bit. The other book that I kind of worked myself through like about 10 pages at a time, and it's been going on for like a year or two because it's like really, really dense, is this book, Super Intelligence, which was uh, in 2014 by Nick Bostrom, who was at the University of Oxford. And it's a take that's kind of both mathematical and philosophical about artificial intelligence and what that really means and, frankly, reasons why we should be pretty worried about it. Are you persuaded to be worried? I am, yeah. And it's dense because a lot of it's it's both technical, frankly, and it's kind of scary. Uh, And so, like, but, yeah, you know, I would love to, you know, if we eventually get a slow period for politics, then I would love to myself kind of devote more time to thinking about what artificial intelligence is and what it means. But super intelligence is a book that, not an easy read by any means, but, like, it's an important read that I would recommend. Nate Silver, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that's the show. Thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thank you to you for being here. Uh, one way to help the show, you can go give it a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, but but iTunes is helpful. The iTunes has this weird algorithm where if things get a lot of reviews, they go up in the featured list, and then people can discover the show more easily. So if you are enjoying this, you can take five minutes and give us a, a quick rating on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. It would be very, very helpful. Thank you for being here as always, and we'll be back on Thursday. Thursday.